I sometimes wonder, someone new to Shalom Macon might wonder, uh, well, especially just tuning in for the first time over the last few weeks or just being here, I think as I was contemplating this next bit of teaching here, I was wondering how many people think, does, it, does this guy just make it his mission to challenge every theological foundation that I ever had growing up? I mean, is that, is that what he does to challenge everything I've known about my religion and faith? And, you know, talking about not forgetting sins that are committed against you and, and, and I can't rely solely on God to fix my life. I have to be actively involved using cigarette smoking to teach me the Bible. I mean, it's a little unconditional. No, unconventional. But the official answer to the question, if you're asking it, is no, that's not my mission. My mission is to help people understand God better, to connect more to God, to know the power of a relationship with the Messiah, what that really means, what it accomplishes. And hopefully in the process to know yourself better, that's actually my mission. But sometimes in that process, yes, we have to challenge things in a whole new way and explore a perspective that you just might not have considered in your life. Often that is a Jewish perspective. And sometimes it seems controversial. But the truth of the matter is that's only because of what you're comparing it to. When you come in with an established set of Christian foundation principles... Yes, some of the things that I say will challenge you. And what's so interesting to me is I, as I ponder my life and all that I do day in, day out, I realize that when people come to me and say, that is not right, what you're saying is not right, they are basing it on a whole set of interpretations and principles from people that never understood anything about Judaism or where it fit in. And it's such a strange world to live in. But yeah, sometimes it's challenging to existing theologies. But ultimately, at some point, you know what I realized? Some point people do say, no, that's not right. It can't be right. Or you ask themselves, is, is that true? What he just said? And I don't force you to have my answer or my opinion on it, but I am going to give you the perspective. And, you know, the, the, the mission to know God, know Messiah, know yourself. I hope that that will continue to be accomplished in a profound way as we talk about repentance, because that's what we're talking about. But since we're doing that, let's talk about sin, because sin is fun to talk about, right? And, and as long as we're talking about sin, let's go all the way back and let's talk about the original one. The original sin, recently First Roots of Zion did a whole section in the Messiah magazine about original sin, which was not necessarily received with glowing reviews because it's challenging. Um, and, and even within some of the objections where, well, no, Rav so-and-so says this about it, and the Midrash says this about it, and, well, you know, there are some varying opinions within Judaism and there is some discussion and opinions that suggest that Adam, he caused us all a real big problem, Adam did. You want to know what the problem is? I'll spell it out for you in five easy steps. God created a perfect place 
They got kicked out by the choices they made, lost an intimate fellowship with God, lost access to the garden. And now we are all waiting to get back into it in the world that will come soon. And when Messiah vanquishes all evil, hands the kingdom back to God and the angels guarding the gate to Gan Eden lower their swords. And we all enter in by the by the by the um, allegiance that we have to God where we'll live for eternity through what Yeshua did. That's the problem Adam created. Now, the next question, all right, that's one thing, but that's not what I know. What I know is that we are supposedly damned by default. Are we damned by default? And, and that's the question that the doctrine of original sin requires an answer to. And thousands of Christian tradition says, yes, you are damned by default. You are, you are born without hope. You are headed for hell on a greased pole. And you need to pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. And that is where we want to run into a problem in Judaism. Because damned by default is not a Jewish concept. The fact that Adam sinned originally, and by the way, I've got a lot to say, so I'm going to move quick. You're just going to have to digest these points, okay? The fact that Adam sinned originally, that makes him the originator of sin. He did it first. He actually, she and he were the first ones who had a chance to sin. And it didn't take long. Because here's what happened. This is the first and obvious example of humanity's ability to choose sin. And that God, according to Judaism, has given us this choice. Now we can jump into a huge discussion about free will, but I don't want to do that. Because there's a simpler way to look at it. God created you with two inclinations. We've talked about this a lot, I know, but if you need a refresher, here it is. If you don't know what the heck I'm talking about, here it is. God created you with two inclinations. Jewish teaching holds that God created you with the Yetzer Hatov, the good inclination, the inclination to do good, the Yetzer Hara, the inclination to do natural things, animal things, primal things, or even evil things. And we see a beautiful concept explanation, illustration of this in the way that we were created. God picked up some mucky, miry clay and created man, and then he blew life into him. Nefesh in the mud, neshama in the breath. Natural, divine. Natural, evil, good, bad, whatever you want to call this. Divine, heavenly. And that divine component within you, that is God within you, literally. All the way back from Adam, Adam brought life. God brought life through Adam. And then everything that has come since still contains that spark of God's divine breath. And we could use more familiar terms, flesh and spirit or good and evil. But here's the thing. Flesh in Judaism is not something to be feared it's not something to be crushed. It's not something to be eradicated. Your flesh is just something that must be controlled. You must have these natural inclinations. 
to desire to eat, to sleep, to work, to procreate. But you must manage them. You must manage them. When you don't, you are out of balance. Your flesh, your, your animal instinct, at that point when you're out of balance, becomes your evil inclination. You're running unchecked. You have no balance. And that's where the soul is supposed to be. That yetzer hatov, that good in you, is supposed to be the balance. It balances the equation. Actually, it doesn't balance the equation because the soul always has to be a little above the bad, right? The soul always has to be making these good decisions for you. When you are in balance, the good in you is making decisions. Managing, managing your impulses, your urges, your desires, your actions, all this stuff. Managing them. How is it doing that? Well, God wrote down a book of instructions for you to follow. And God sent, Yeshua was on earth teaching and he gave us other instructions. Be the person that God called you to be and the Holy Spirit within you fans this, this flame of good. The power of God within you, the good he gave you. And guess what? Ready for this radical thing that, that, that just takes away this helpless mentality that some people have? You can do that. You can live in the proper balance. You can make good decisions. Now listen, it's incredibly unlikely that you can live without any violation of God's standard of perfection or remain perfectly clean throughout your life. Only one has ever done that. His name's Yeshua. Okay, that's, that's probably not a thing that any of us are ever going to be able to do. And so when it comes to entering back into the Garden of Eden that Adam got us kicked out of, you need an advocate. You need someone who's perfection. You need somebody who you can say, I'm with him. To be in, in allegiance to Messiah's faithfulness, to be covered by his faithfulness, the one who lived perfectly, that's Yeshua. But listen, this is not a salvation message. This is not about your eternal destiny. If you want to know more about Yeshua, what Messiah is, why it matters to you, and you should, info at shalommakin.org, or you can just stop by. Questions at shalommakin.org if you need to know that. But that's, that's something different. And, and, but, but before we move off that, that's accessible to you. You know what it's going to take for you to have that? First off, it's going to take a choice, which God gave you the ability to make. Okay, you'll need to make a choice and some changes. But praise God, it's one of the choices we get to make. And also, let's be real clear here. There are people who do heinous, grievous sins, murder people, do terrible things to other human beings. These are more than just being a little bit out of balance. Okay? We're not, I'm not talking about things that require the death penalty according to the Torah. What we're talking about here is, is, is your day-to-day -day life. A sin is imbalance. Chet in the word. When we say uh, al chet on Yom Kippur, we're saying for the sin that is this, for the sin that is this. Chet just means to miss the mark. I went off course. I missed the mark. I listened to the wrong voice. I went the wrong way. And those, my friends, are the choices that you get to make every single day of your life. You get to choose. 
Good choices feed the good in you, the God in you, the divine. Bad choices feed the other side. But you know something? Not everyone has that struggle. Not everyone has that struggle. In other words, it seems strange, but if you read your Bible closely, you'll read about righteous people in that book. You will read about righteous people. Abraham, Samuel, Zechariah, and Elisheva, John's parents, who are, who are directly called righteous. They did not veer from the commandments of God. Paul. Everyone reads Romans and says, thinks Paul's a terrible, horrendous person. But Paul actually said, I'm blameless before the Lord. And when you're reading other things, you really have to take that in context. And the point is not that they could save themselves through their righteousness. Yeshua is definitely a part of that equation. But what it means is, when you're talking about Zechariah and Elisheva being righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations, it means they live their lives in balance. Sin is not a stain from Adam. It's a life lived out of balance. A pattern of repetitive sins leads to a life that is way out of balance. And those people that I mentioned to you just now, and many others through history, have made phenomenal choices about how they live their lives on this planet in balance. Flesh, yes, they had flesh, but it was balanced by the Spirit. It was not destroyed. Now, Judaism, God created the world to be enjoyed by his creation. To suggest that our task is to crush the natural instinct is not true. We're not actually called to move to monasteries and convents. We're not called to be ascetics. We're to separate ourselves completely from every aspect of pleasure in the world. That's not accurate. Now, some people need to do that because, I don't know, they're just, that, that's what they need to do. And God has used them throughout history to, to teach things and do stuff. But for you and me, first of all, but, but Rabbi, we're called to be holy. We're called to, to separate ourselves, to be unique and different. Yeah, you're right. You are. And that is called, and you will be very unique if you can live your life out there in balance, making good choices that keep you from being sinful, making bad choices. Sin upsets the balance. Sin separates. Sin creates distance. Now, there's a, there's a beautiful esoteric interpretation in Judaism. It is that your soul has a lifeline, a cord, if you will, connected directly to heaven, that you and God are connected in that which is of him that is in you. And this soul is constantly, you can compare it. I read this Simon Jacobson book. He said, your life is like a candle light when you look at it, the flame on a candle. The yellow part is constantly flickering and, and waving to get up and the blue light and the wick is holding you on earth. But that lifeline, that, that, that cord is like a bungee cord, like a rubber band. And still, you know, all the way from Adam to now, the soul continues to yearn for those things which are of God. Your body, your natural inclination yearns for more of this world. But listen, you know what 
conviction. Who knows what conviction feels like? I'm done. (laughs) Nobody's ever been convicted. No one knows what that feels like. I can wrap it up. I'll tell you what conviction feels like. Conviction feels like if you imagine that cord between you and God, it feels like that cord going and getting tight and tension. And it's stretching because you're going the wrong way. God is anchored here. You are anchored here and you're doing this. And the rubber band is stretching in the tension. You feel it, and it's called conviction. Has anyone ever felt that? Good. Thank God. At least we have something to talk about. When you turn and go a different direction, when you miss the mark, that's what chet is. That's what sin is. And that's a memorable picture of that. I want you to tuck that away in your, in your picture mind of that cord and what that is and what that feels like and what that makes you want to do or not do. But keep in mind, keep this in mind, when you're anchored right there, up here, and you turn and start walking, guess what? And you feel that tension and that pull, Adam didn't make you do that. That's not Adam's fault. But Adam caused sin to enter into the world. If it wasn't Adam, it would have been the next one. And you weren't born, though, without options. You weren't forced to make that decision that causes and creates the tension because Adam did doesn't mean we have to. We are born with the freedom to make the choices we want to make every single day of our lives. These are our choices. And we discussed that last week. Not completely on our own, of course. We, are, we, we, need, we need more than ourselves, but we do have to make good choices. We must return. When we feel it, you've you, you, you got to release that tension. That's what a return is. And put things back in balance. Now, uh, you see the righteous ones, Abraham, Zechariah, Elisha. I mean, Abraham even told a lie, but he's still God's good friend and a righteous dude. And so much is guaranteed because of what Abraham did. But those people, all the people you've known in your life who are just, you look at them, you're like, wow, they're so holy. They're so good. But they're human. They're like you and me. They're like you and me. They have the same working natures of good and and animal. But they have a cord that's in balance. They are connected to God in a healthy way. And they feel that. And when they feel the tension, they know, oh, no, I'm staying here. I'm not going to put tension on this. And they live a life where their cord is balanced without tension. They're in tune with the balance, to recognize that tension. And you know it. You know that's a tangible feeling that you get when you are making a bad decision. But here's where it gets really interesting. 
You see, in the period that we're in right now in the month of Elul of really searching out the causes of tension in our connection or just really sitting down and saying, oh my God in heaven, I have run so far. There's so much tension in my life. There's so much tension on my cord or feeling how we might be controlled by those parts of our nature that are of the earth and not of heaven. Well, listen, the righteous people will never feel that feeling. Those holy righteous, they don't feel that feeling. And that's an amazing thing. And there's an incredible reward for that. But guess what? That means they won't feel something else either. You know what they'll never feel? The return. They will never, now they don't have to, but they will never feel the feeling of making the turn and just coming back and having that tension and having God gently pulling you back. The return, the tshuva, the repentance, the forgiveness. They, won't, they, they don't have that feeling. And Rabbi Jacob used to say, more precious is one hour in repentance and good deeds in this world than all the life of the world to come. How many of you can testify to the feeling of forgiveness and reconciliation? If you're a disciple of Yeshua, you absolutely can because that's where your life really got started. But even in your human relationships, the feeling that you have when reconciliation takes place, that feeling of extending or receiving forgiveness and having it come back with God, with a fellow human. And yeah, we feel that with, with the, the decision to become a disciple of Yeshua. It's that sensation that runs through your head and your heart when you realize, I've been forgiven. And, but, but, but sadly, for some people, when they make this decision, that's the only time they ever really feel that. Do you know why? It's a really weird thing. It's a weird thing because they're told that's all we need. Just be forgiven. Get that, uh, get that ugly Adam stain off of you. Get extracted from that damned by default position and all is well. But that's not true. If you want to live a fulfilled life on this planet, there is so much more. So much more, a lot of life to live before we go back to the garden. And every day we add difficulty to our lives, unfortunately. To borrow the mind picture again, we choose the wrong way. We, we, we walk away, we pull the cord, we tense it up, and we feel it. There's another verse from the Talmud that's amazing. It says, in the place where stand those who turn from error... Even the most perfect saints cannot stand. Translation, where the repentant stand, even the righteous cannot. It's a strange thought, but what it means is that God has a special place of love for the sinner who returns. A love so deep that the righteous can't even relate, they can't even stand there. And as great as the reward is for the righteous, the one who has sinned and made teshuva, return to God who's waiting for you, experiences something that the righteous will never feel. And the prodigal son is the perfect illustration of that. But here's the question. Is it possible then that sin is good? 
Does God like sin? Does God make us do it? Is it possible? Does God see good in sin? Should we continue to sin so that we can experience the joy of repentance? Paul asked that question, didn't he? Romans. Should we continue to sin? He says, what shall we say? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. May it never happen, he says. How shall we who, who died to sin still live in sin? Of course God doesn't love sin, but here's a bit of a controversial point I want you to consider. He doesn't like it, but not because it turns you into some disgusting, foul creature before him. That he hates you. When you sin because you're, uh, you, you're a filthy animal, you gave in to your earthly nature, and, and, and he, he made you, he gave you choices, he knows your nature. Could it possibly be that God looks upon me in sin and thinks, ugh! Disgusting. It could be compared to, listen, that perspective, which is fairly, it's, it's not uncommon. It could be compared to a mother of, a, of an infant child. And the child, this is, this is just graphic because it's great. It's memorable. The child's wearing a diaper. The child uses the bathroom and it's diaper. It's gross. Sin is gross. And the mother, every single time this child does this, she screams at the baby, you disgusting thing, you make me sick. I can't believe you did this in your diaper. You are an abomination. I can't stand to look at you. And eventually just stops changing the child because she, she hates the dirtiness of the kid's filthy animal nature. She just turns her back. God forbid. A, a, a mother who loves the child, she recognizes the inner beauty. It is her child. And the parents will care for them and change them every time until the child gets this message. No parent wants to leave their child in that condition. Or honestly, I mean, to, oh, come here, let's cuddle up, dirty diaper kid. Okay, so I'm not suggesting that God just loves you when you sin all over yourself. But the parents will lead the child into a proper understanding. They will lead the child about controlling urges, instincts, proper behavior. And even in the process, process of that training, guess what? If the child has an accident in the process of, of making a turn, the mom doesn't go, I hate you! Stupid! 
she embraces the child in its failures and faults and says, let me help you. Let me help you. The mother will receive the child with love. Now, I'm sorry I yelled, but the mom was angry. <laughs> God hates sin. But he can, does, and will use it. He does. From God's perspective, there is, and this is where you, I don't know, you can disagree, you can get up and leave, you can say I'm a false teacher, whatever, but let me tell you what Judaism says just so you can ponder it. There is a positive essence of transgression, transgression. The positive purpose for which he created man's susceptibility to evil and his capacity for sin in the first place. As viewed by its creator, transgression is the potential for a deeper bond between himself and man. A bond born out of the transformation of evil into good and failure into achievement. And every moment where that feeling of forgiveness, of being received back, of being greeted by God with open arms is designed like the child learning to control his or her natural urges to change you, to draw you close and keep you closer. It's a different way, I know, of seeing sin. Sin is not good. And that has to be approached with balance. Again, to Paul's words, what do we do? Sin all day so we can have more grace and forgiveness? May it never be. That's what we truly call cheap grace. And Judaism is full of teaching about the person who says, well, I know I have repentance, so I'll just sin now and I'll ask later. No, it doesn't work like that either. But even in this most beautiful act of God's creation, that of repentance, there are guidelines. But let me tell you, have you ever heard this phrase, God can't even look upon sin? I've heard often people say, well, you know what? God turned his back on Yeshua on the cross because he was covered in sin and he couldn't even, he couldn't even look upon him. And that's why Yeshua said, why did you forsake me? Because he turned his back on him. He couldn't even, couldn't even stand to look. God can't look at sin. That's a lie. That is an extremely small God, actually. Ew, sin! It's based on Habakkuk, where he says, you can't look on sin. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. It's sort of silly, actually, to think that God created us with this nature. He knows our weaknesses, and then when we fail, he turns his back on us. Or, or better yet, all we have to do is just say a prayer and ask Jesus into our heart, and no matter what we do, God looks upon us and he smiles. Because you said that, okay? I get it. It sounds like I'm saying something I'm not. But the point is, this life matters, this life matters. That theology 
of just wiping away the original sin that Adam gave you and then going on with your life and it's all good and great till we go to heaven. This life matters. That theology is messed up. God can, can and does look upon you and he can look upon sin. When it says I, he can't look upon sin, you know what he's saying? Can't tolerate it. I can't sit there and do nothing while my child suffers. I can't do nothing about this. That's what that means in Habakkuk. So he does something, God. He does a lot of something, but it is not to hate you or see you as foul or even in your failures. You should not see yourself in your failures that way either. But here's what God does because he can do anything. And when it comes to eternal salvation that everyone needs from Adam to Paul to Chris to Travis and Kelly and everyone needs that, when it comes to that aspect of it, he exalted Messiah to his right hand as our advocate for entrance into the kingdom of heaven and beyond. Thank God. But here's the big problem. And today's conclusion leads us into next week. What about right now? What about right now? God can't do nothing. He can use our sin for good. The problem, sometimes we just won't stop walking away. Sometimes we just will not stop pulling the cord and the tension builds so strong. You ever seen somebody pull a rubber band like that and you're like, ah! waiting for it to pop? That's our problem, is sometimes we just, no matter what, we pull the tension so hard. And even though we feel it, we won't stop. We can't, we won't, I don't know which one it is. But we keep running, and that is, that is the beauty of the high holidays. We won't sometimes come to him. The cord is stretched to the max. We're far away. So he comes to us. The verse in Isaiah 55, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. That's where we draw. The king is in the field from the high holidays. Let the wicked forsake their ways, the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. And all this stuff we're talking about regarding sin, that verse continues and you know it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts. God doesn't like sin. He hates sin, as a matter of fact, because of what it does to you, to others, to your relationship with him. But he is God. And he can use it for good. And these days are about recognizing the tension and realize that however far you have stretched it, if it's stretched to the max, the first thing you got to do is just stop. And repentance is about turning. And here's the way it works. As God draws nearer to you because you won't come to him, what happens to the tension in the line? 
it's reduced. All that anxiety and all that, all that mess that's inside of you because of the tension can begin to be loosened. And you can turn. And you can approach God in a new kind of way in these days. And that's what it's about. That's what he's doing. When we won't come to him, God does everything and will come to us to loosen the tension. He can use it for good. So stop running, stop resisting, stop going the wrong way. Feel the tension, stop. And now as we move closer to the holidays, God has loosened the tension, meeting us right here. So I just want to have you do one thing. Rosh Hashanah begins next week and just stop and make the turn and let God come to you and he will meet you in the field where the king is right now. We are capable of so many things with the power of God that dwells within us and the good choices that he's empowered us to make. We make that decision now today. And we come out of the high holidays on the other side of this renewed, renewed, refreshed. And I'll conclude it next week with that. Shabbat Shalom, my friends. Let's stand.